Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want to see it reach more grieving ears and hearts, support Coming Back on Patreon at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. My Patreon supporters get exclusive access to weekly grief journaling prompts and live grief hangouts with me. Pledge for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Join this growing behind-the-scenes community now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Thank you so much for listening to Coming Back. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm sitting down with Cole Imperi, a colorful death care professional and dual-certified thanatologist to talk about grief as a grief professional, what it's like to be religiously promiscuous, and how we can use our bodies as tools to move our grief. Also this week, I'm talking about the torture of reliving final memories and sharing some tips to help you ease the replaying of your own final memories with a loved one who has died. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and coach who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Coming Back This Week. Thank you so much for listening today. Just a heads up that less than one week from today, on Monday, June 24th, I am hosting my monthly grief support hangout. This is happening at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. That's Chicago time for all of you Midwesterners. Hopefully after work for most of you listening, especially if you're in the States. And this is an hour-long grief support group where we share stories, coping tips, and favorite resources for coming back. So if you've ever wanted to have like a Q&A with me, this is your chance. I want to hear how Father's Day was for you, what you're looking forward to or dreading in the summer months, as well as what's been helping you or your grief lately. So join me and your fellow Coming Back listeners for my monthly grief support hangout on Monday, June 24th at 8 p.m. Central Time. All you have to do to join us is pledge to support the podcast at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Any pledge amount over on Patreon will unlock the link to join us live, and you can find that link at patreon.com slash in the show notes for this episode. This week, Grief Growers, I want to talk about our memories, specifically our final memories of a loved one. Whether your last memory of a loved one was seeing them in a casket, watching them walk out your door, or standing beside them as they took their last breath, these memories get lodged in our brains forever, often really, really vividly as if it were yesterday. And in grief, they can seem to torture us like they're on replay over and over and over again. One of my last memories of my mom is seeing her frozen still in the hospital bed that hospice set up in her bedroom. I remember being horrified, terrified, and shocked that she was not alive. Like I I vividly remember the sensation of a chill going through my bones, like a very deep chill. My only exposure to death before hers was the death of my grandfather, who I saw prettied up in a casket when I was in the fifth grade. And this was totally different. Her face 
looked like a zombie with her eyes closed and her mouth wide open. And she had lost so much weight in the last two years. It was like I was looking at a haunted shell of her. And I don't think I'll ever forget that picture. Another last memory that I have of my mom is at her viewing. This was the last time I saw her body ever. I remember being angry that the funeral home hadn't asked us for clothes that she'd like to be buried in or had the foresight to put her in a gown or a robe. Instead, she was lying still under a green rug that looked like AstroTurf. I was furious that she was draped by something that people lay down on their front porches and their soccer fields. I even noticed that the surface that she was lying on was a common hospital stretcher. They hadn't even taken the care to transfer her to something more solid or respectful, like a table. One last memory I'll share with you is of my mom in the process of dying. About three or four days out from her death, although none of us knew exactly when her death would be at the time, she had this striking moment of clarity and cognizance. Her eyes flew open and she spoke really clearly to us and she asked only one question. She said only one thing. Am I dying? I will never ever forget the way those words came out of her mouth. In one really sharp, fleeting moment, she recognized exactly what was happening in her body and her spirit and verbalized it aloud to her husband and her kids. And what were we supposed to say? I remember that moment so brightly, so loudly in my brain, and it's probably going to stick with me for as long as I live. Grief growers, These last memories we have of our loved ones are so, so powerful. These memories are our final interactions with the people we love. So they're, they're already flagged with like high importance in our brains. But what makes them even more vivid and memorable is that our memories of a sick or dying person are usually out of the ordinary. How often do we experience death in our day to day? Our brains scientifically are wired to remember and bookmark novel or new experiences. We take in smells and sights and sounds and tastes and sensations so much more readily when something is brand new, never experienced before. Holy crap, what the heck is this? Our brains are trained to hold on to our final memories with our loved ones for two reasons. One, because they're very important hallmarks and touchstones in our lives, but also Because to our animalistic brains who are trained to keep us alive and to survive, they're like nothing we've ever experienced before. So our brains do this very thorough, thoughtful cataloging of the last moments that we have with our loved ones. And what really sucks, and something a lot of grieving people experience, is this torturous replay of final memories over and over and over again. It's relentless. Last words, last sounds, last visuals, last touches, last, last, last everything. Over and over and over and over again. It's like those flashback scenes in movies when somebody remembers an important clue or a key to their backstory, but these flashbacks visit us all the time. And they're out of our control. We're not even looking for them to appear and they keep showing up. And this is agonizing, grief growers. It disrupts our daily life. It keeps us from from sleeping and eating and speaking sometimes. And I know in my own world, it made me feel trapped, like death and dying. And specifically, my mom's last words, her dead body, my anger and horror were haunting me. And they were stuck to me like cling film plastered to my forehead 
I would relive my mom's death every morning when I woke up, and those memories were the last thing in my brain before I fell asleep. Today, I want to offer you some tools for shifting last memories, not discarding or forgetting them by any means, because I don't know if that's possible, but learning to live with them and alongside them. The first tip that I'll share with you this week is to find a friend who remembers your loved one in life. This week, uh, off the mic, I was talking to a woman named Alina, who is a coming back listener from the Netherlands, and she was telling me about how she survived Father's Day this year. Her dad died back in October of 2017, which is a little less than two years ago, and of course Father's Day is hard for her. She told me that she had a friend with her this year who had known her family for a long time and has this ability to bring up memories from 10 years ago, ones that she may have forgotten. She said that just having him around is helpful because, as she said in her own words, my memories are invested by literally watching him die of sickness. And this is true for my story too, something that helps me survive my own haunting memories of my mom's death is spending time with people who really knew her in life, pre-cancer, pre-sickness, pre-death. Her sisters, who are my aunts and godmother, my sister, my dad, her church friends, her childhood friends, these people all have memories and stories that I don't know about and remember her vibrant and happy and not dying. Having their memories infused with mine has been such a powerful way to diminish the overwhelming power of her death memories just a little bit. It takes me from this place of only having a small handful of memories to play on a constant loop to having this library of funny stories and mannerisms and events and facial expressions and inside jokes to watch in my head. I challenge you to make a list this week of five people who knew your person in life, whether they're co-workers, friends, family, etc., and ask them to share a memory with you. This can be over Facebook Messenger, you can text them, you can show up in person and say something, and you can start to develop this little collection of life memories that exist alongside your death memories, and it can make your death memories seem a little less powerful or all-consuming as a result. The second tip I'll offer you this week is to go back a little further and select a memory that you'd like to pair with this hard final memory. So I'll lay this out a little bit more. In episode 75 of Coming Back, which was called Endless Stories with Jessica Waite, I spoke to Jessica about the death of her husband on a business trip. He died while he was traveling. He died in the shuttle on the way to the airport. So her last memories of him were foggy. She didn't really recall a lot of that day or a lot of the experience because she wasn't there for his death. And before a business trip, he would sleep on the couch or in the guest room so he wouldn't wake her up when he got up early to catch a plane. I asked her in our interview if she was troubled or upset about her last memories of him, and she shared a really neat tip with all of us. Jessica said that her last memory of her husband was not strong, so she holds on to the next closest memory, a very, very strong one for her, of her husband and her son dressed up in Halloween costumes just a few days before his death, being silly and having a lightsaber battle and playing in the backyard. And pairing that memory with her last memories helps her brain to kind of stop the searching that it does to remember those last moments that weren't very strong or weren't very memorable for her. So if you don't have final memories, maybe reach back just a little bit for the next best thing, the next closest memory. Especially if you were not in touch with your loved one before their death, or maybe they were far away, why not choose the memory that was next closest to have on replay? 
What strong memory of a holiday or a special occasion or a family trip happened closest in proximity to their death? Maybe that can be your touchstone memory that you can have on repeat. The last tip I'll share with you today is to make a game of remembering one new positive memory every day for 60 days. Something that I like to do a lot, especially with my grief coaching clients, is to make living life after grief a game. If you remember, I referenced this a lot, uh, my idea that grief is an involuntary scavenger hunt, where so much of life after loss is about picking things up and trying them on, like all these new tools that we need to navigate life in the after. We pick them up, we try them on, we see if they suit us, we keep them if they do, we put them down if they're not. And it changes this this pressure that we often feel to find what works for us immediately in the aftermath of loss to turning it into this game where we get to go on this scavenger hunt of what really works for us now. And the pressure is kind of taken off there. So one thing that I encourage my grief clients to do is to make a game of remembering one new happy or positive memory every day for 60 days. You can literally use anything as a trigger for a memory. So for example, the traffic outside reminds you that one time you were stuck in traffic together and made a really rockin' playlist on the way somewhere. A cat sitting on your lap reminds you of the day that you adopted a cat together and the argument that you got into picking out a name for him. The sound of a piano on the radio reminds me of the piano recital that you performed in when you were seven and you saw them up there in the crowd in the stands. If you have photos of your loved one, or if other people have photos of them, you can use those to help trigger your brain to remember, too. So for 60 days, I encourage you to pick a theme or an object and remember something about your loved one that includes that theme or object every day. It's a really fun way to challenge your brain to remember and hang on to new memories of your loved one, and it's constantly asking your brain to do an audit of everything that's in there to locate happy or positive things. In that way, our brains can rewire in the direction of those memories, those feelings, those experiences, instead of literally wearing a mental groove in your brain that replays these final torturous moments over and over and over again. It's a really neat trick. It is not easy to feel like you're haunted grief growers. I have lived this life of feeling like I'm in a torture chamber with my mom's final memories beating me up to the point of exhaustion. For a while after she died, I replayed these memories whenever my mind would wander, and especially at night they would show up in my dreams. But gradually, as I spent time with my family and friends who knew her in life, and I built my bank of memories, as I chose to purposely remember her writing notes to her friends six days before her death instead of the day she died... And as I made a game out of remembering positive things, I've helped my brain connect to less torturous memories of her. And it doesn't mean I don't replay her death anymore. There are days where I still replay walking in to see her dead body. I absolutely do that. These final memories are impossible to fully erase, I think. But having these tips and tricks, having these memories live in a larger library of memories... It makes me feel like I can breathe. And sometimes I feel like I can have other emotions like joy and nostalgia and love in addition to torture. And that feels like such a relief while grieving. I would love to hear from you this week, grief growers. If there's a memory of your loved one that you'd like to share, whether it's a final memory or another one, I encourage you to share it with us in the Grief Growers Garden, which is my private Facebook group for listeners of this show. 
I'll be sharing a memory of my mom that I have never shared before, uh, along with a photo. So that will be a lot of fun to see that in there. I always love holding space for your stories. To join us there, just request to join the Grief Growers Garden on Facebook. I'll see you there soon. Up next, I'm talking to Cole Imperi, a death professional who's had to do quite a bit of her own grieving. Grief is setting sail, twice, on the 2020 Bereavement Cruises. To join a boatload of grieving hearts for interactive grief workshops, heart-healing craft projects, circles of hope, and a beautiful candlelit night of remembrance at sea, request more information at comingbackcruise.com. You'll be contacted by the cruise's organizer and previous Coming Back podcast guest, Linda Finley, to hear more about your choice of two tropical cruises setting sail in 2020. And when you're ready, she'll help you reserve your spot on board. Bereavement cruise cabins do go quickly, so request more information now at comingbackcruise.com, where grief finds support and community on the open sea. Cole Imperi is a dual-certified thanatologist who's on a mission to improve death and dying in the U.S. before her own demise. She's also a public health educator with a knack for making difficult topics like death, dying, grief, and bereavement accessible, and sometimes even exciting. Cole has worked with more than 125 funeral homes, cemeteries, crematories, hospices, and other end-of-life-related entities as a consultant over the last decade, and co-owns a data-driven death care improvement company called Dead Ringers. Cole is currently the host of two podcasts, Life, Death, and Tarot, and The American Thanatologist, and is working on two books. She's also pioneered the field of thanabotany and concepts like shadow loss and lilac days. You can find her work at AmericanThanatologist.com and support her work as an independent thanatologist on her Patreon page. You can also purchase her thanatology and grief-related merchandise, all of which she designed. Well, Cole, I am delighted to have you on the show today because in a weird way, as you said, we are cut from the same cloth. We talk about death, we make gardening metaphors, and we both know that it doesn't take death to constitute a loss. So welcome to Coming Back, and if you could please launch into your loss story. Thank you so much for having me and inviting me into your space. Um, One of the things that really struck me was how um, just kind I would say your community is. So hello, everybody. Thank you for having me. Um, So I'm a thanatologist and thanatology is the study of death and dying. And I've been involved in this work in all kinds of ways for more than a decade now. Um, And like every single human being, I have had loss in my own life. Um, But I will say that my loss and my, my multiple losses in life were not what like was the catalyst for me to get into this work. Over the years, working with funeral directors, all kinds of people in end of life, even working with other um, death doulas and things, a lot of people found that work because of a loss. And I'm a little bit different in that my losses did not impact this uh, entrance into the field. The field kind of found me. Um, So that said, I think I will share, you know what, I want to talk about a really recent loss. my sister died in March of this year, 2019. And I want to bring that up because that's a recent loss. And for somebody like you, Shelby, you know, we're very educated about grief, right? Loss, death, dying, what to expect, all that stuff. And then, you know, going through my sister's loss, 
showed me a whole new side of loss that I had never considered, looked at, or thought about. And it's that people who work with death, with end of life, with loss, with grief, when they have losses in their own life, what is that like, right? Because I think back to my very first losses when I was a teenager, you know, and I knew nothing about what to expect, right, with grief. And then now as an, like, as an individual who's now in her 30s, and I've been around so much loss, to weather one is a totally new experience. And it kind of took me by surprise. So one of the things that I learned since my sister died is that one of the comments that I often got from people were, oh, like, I'm so sorry to hear your sister died. Um, I bet you're already done grieving, right? Because you're an expert in death. Ha ha. And I'm like, whoa. And I heard that a lot. You know, Shelby, you've talked about this. Um, I forget with what guess about like things people say, right? When they're trying to be supportive. Um, oh, yeah. So this is new for me. So people are like, oh, well, you're, you're an expert in death. So you must not really have been that sad. Um, so that's been very eye-opening. So now one of the, I always look for, you know, instead of asking why something happens, I always ask what, what can I learn? So what can I learn from this experience after losing my sister? Um, now, if there's anybody else in my world that works with end of life, death or dying, and they post or share about a personal loss, I make it a point to super directly make sure to reach out to them. Because now I know from going through it that a lot of people make an assumption that if you have an expertise in this area, that you don't grieve as hard. I'm going to draw um, as close of a parallel as I can, but this is really similar to those posts that have been circulating about mental health of like, watch out for the happy people. Like people know to check in on their friends who are depressed or bipolar or anxious or struggling with mental health in a visible or like a, even a tangible way. But it's always like, watch out for the comedians, watch out for the chefs, watch out for the designers, the people who show no signs, because oftentimes those are the people who have these things, but no one cares to check on them because they must be an expert in happiness if they're so happy yeah. or if their lives are going so well. And um, this is so interesting because this is the first time I've heard this from a death care professional on the show is that people thought I was an expert in death. And so I wasn't going to grieve. And I literally wrote down as you were talking, information does not equal emotions. Exactly. Like, it doesn't make it any better or worse to have more information. The brain is totally separate from the heart. Yeah, it's a totally different realm. And um, I was in uh, New York last weekend, and I attended a uh, like a little funeral event. Um, and I talked to, so I was in a room full of death doulas, death midwives. There were like estate attorneys, funeral directors, crematory operators. And I was able to share, you know, hey guys, this has happened since my sister died. And everybody was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's this apparently thing that is understood among death people. But I mean, I had never heard anybody talk about this. And then all of a sudden this was like the sort of quote unquote support that I was getting. And it really, honest to God, I just, it like took the, the breath right out of me because it's like, it was so unexpected. And so that's been humbling for me, someone who has been in this work for over a decade, you know, to be, to, to, to be in a situation where you don't know what to say, you know, I'm just like, whoa. Um, so anyway, that's my recent loss story. 
I'm curious to know then, because so many people, including myself, get into grief work because of a loss that we've experienced. Mm -hmm. How did thanatology enter your world then as an option? Because not many people growing up were like, oh, I think I want to work in the death industry. (laughs) Yeah. And I definitely was not that person. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be like a singer. And then I thought I was going to do fashion. And if you look at me, I have um, like dark green hair. Um, I really am into fashion, (laughs) like so much. Um, And death, honestly, it, it followed me. I very actively, directly, and distinctly, like significantly altered my career path in my 20s specifically to get the heck away from it. And I ran right back into it without even seeing it coming. Um, and let's see, like at my, the tail end of my 20s, I went through a process by choice um, called vocational discernment. Um, vocational discernment is something that religious people who are like, trying to figure out if they want to enter the priesthood or if they want to become a nun or a brother go through. It's like a multi-year process and you discern if this is truly your vocation or not. Um, and I was able to, I contacted um, a local order of sisters. Um, I contacted people from all different faiths to help me go through this process. It took about 18 to 24 months. And that was when I came to terms with the fact that this is my calling um, and also learned that callings are not easy and they're not fun um, all the time. They're very rewarding, but they're they're really difficult and challenging. Um, so it kind of found me. Um, and at no point was I ever like a kid being like, oh, I want to be a thanatologist. You know, I didn't know what that word was till I was in my um, 20s. Um, and now I'm dual certified. So I've gone to um, school or certification for that uh, more than once just to get educated from different schools of thought as well. So, yeah. That's so fascinating. And I'm curious, I I mean, I'm picturing you, I've seen photos of you with like the green hair and like the fashionista element, like hanging out with nuns being like, tell me what to do with my life. And it (laughs) seems like the plot for like a sitcom or, or some kind of movie or something like that. Um, (laughs) Was there religiousness in your history or background or have you had to do some kind of uncoupling because sometimes religion can be really great for grief and death work and sometimes it can be really toxic yeah so um this centers on the idea that sometimes our greatest strength can also be our greatest weakness right like you might be really great at focusing but there are times in life where you need to not be so focused and pay attention to things that are going on in your environment So I kind of have formed a relationship with um, religious traditions on a personal level that are like that. I believe that religion can be a great strength in your life, but it can also be a great weakness, right? Like there are ways that we can use religion or religious beliefs as a way to keep us stuck or keep us defeated um, and keep us in negative patterns. So I was raised um, Roman Catholic. Um, I went to Catholic school through eighth grade. And in eighth grade, I decided I did not really <laughs> resonate with what was being taught. And so I chose to go to public high school. In high school, I sort of became one of the Jewish kids. Um, I went to a public high school that like over 10% of our population was Jewish. Um, and I just fell in with that group and people just thought I was Jewish. And I started to observe Shabbat um, at like 13 or 14. That's Friday night ritual, light candles, unplug from technology, hang out with each other. And then in college. Um, 
or by the time I hit college, I was really angry at religion. And I was so angry that I decided to channel that anger by getting a degree in it. Um, I got my bachelor's is in journalism. And then I also got a degree in Judaic studies. So I learned to read and write biblical Hebrew in college so that I could read the biblical texts in the native language and understand the linguistics of the time. Like I was so angry at religion (laughs) that I was like, going to be able to speak it. Um, And then after that, I found out that I was Jewish by blood. And this had been kind of withheld in my family. And a DNA test like confirmed that many years later, I ended up getting my bat mitzvah done um, when I was over in Israel, and I got a Hebrew name and all that stuff. Um, But to this day, right now, I would not identify as a religious person. I'm, I'm, I would identify as spiritual. And I currently um, am very, am very closely associated with a Buddhist Sangha that is based out of New York City um, that has a big emphasis on death. Um, so I am what you might call my friend Amy Cunningham, who's a funeral director in New York. She calls herself religiously promiscuous, and I identify with that very much so. <laughs> oh, I love that phrase so much. Um... Yeah, because it kind of, I mean, for lack of better phrasing, it kind of implies like sleeping around yeah. with different religions or like trying them on and seeing if they yeah. work. And I'm so, I'm, I'm cackling at this idea of, I hated it so much, I decided to get a degree in it. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like, I'm going to dislike it so much, I'm going to learn everything I can about it. And like the first thing that sprang to my mind are people who do nothing but read like um, political pieces or, or memoirs or texts or, you know, news sources or what have you. And then they just get as educated as they possibly can so they can like turn it around on what they actually believe. (laughs) Yeah. And at some point I got to the point where I was like, dude, do you want to carry this anger around that you will never be able to do anything with? And then at that point, that was when I really learned about forgiveness. Um, truly. Um, and my work in death over the years has really helped me um, get to a place with, with of what I would call presence um, to all faiths, all belief systems, all religious viewpoints where I am just so happy to be in the room with it. You know, I don't have to pick it up and carry it home with me. I just love to be with it and around it. Um, so I know that that is an experience that I think quite a few people, you know, get to. Um, and also it helps not being 18 years old and angry at religion, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, um, I won't say it's an experience that everyone has because I think some people have, I wouldn't call it the good fortune, but kind of the, the unrocked experience of having religion constantly throughout their lives. And so I'm like, yeah. Oh, that must be nice because I had a massive religious reckoning kind of pre-grief, but then post, I would say pre-grief. Grief is unending, but pre, pre-loss and post-loss mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because God takes on a whole different role when someone you love has died. Yeah. Um, yep. But oh my gosh, that's just, that's just so wild. And I love that there are even different sects of Buddhism now that are like, we deal mostly with death. Yes. Yeah. So, and I, you know, I, I feel like so much stuff in America we, we, we suck out the good part, which is often also the difficult part, right? Like death. Um, yoga is a great example of this. You know, all yoga classes traditionally end in Shavasana, which translates to corpse pose. And the whole purpose of the system of yoga is to become 
comfortable with your own death, but we don't teach that here in the U.S. And the reality is, is when you are aware of that fact and you engage and go through a whole yoga class, a lot of times it becomes more potent because you are recognizing that interplay with death um, that we undertake by choice. Um, And I say this as someone who is a yoga teacher. So, yeah. I'm so interested. I'm literally on your website right now, and I'm so interested by the wide umbrella of things that you do. So I'm wondering if you can tell us what people would expect a thanatologist to do and then what you do, because I feel like it's so... um, I mean, the reason I was drawn to it was because it's so eclectic and fun and approachable as opposed to so much death material that exists in the world that's very dark and or it's filled with like calla lilies and platitudes. Yes. <laughs> and that you have neither on your website. Oh, and I'm like, heck no. So. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So I'm a thanatologist, study of death and dying. The word thanatology itself wasn't, didn't exist before 1905. So there was that word had never been used before. Um, so it's 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 an emerging field, um, and a lot of people that would identify as thanatologists, they tend to be like clinicians. They're they're academics, they're scholars, they're researchers. I am different in that, and I'm going to tell you this: my mission by the time that I die is to improve the way that we deal with the death and dying in the United States in my lifetime. By the time that we die, that's what I'm here to do, and. So the way that I work with the subject of death is I try to, and have been doing this for over a decade now, develop, test, and put out there ways that we can apply, ways that we can make the process of grief physical. Because that's sometimes the hardest part about grief is you have this like invisible roommate that you have to live with the rest of your life. And it's really hard because we are physical beings to not have a physicality to that. So some of the things that I do, um, I do a lot of speaking and teaching and lecturing. Um, I have two certifications that count for college credit. If you need that, um, there are like, um, I think I can't use the word accredited. It's some, some weird tech, like approved. Um, so you can become certified in thanatology through me all online, 22 weeks of education, um, or certified in death companioning. Um, here in Cincinnati, I serve my local community as a death companion. Death companioning is not new. Humans have been helping each other through losses as long as we've been living. And so that's what I do here locally. Um, I also uh, pioneered the field of thanabotany. Thanabotany is the study of how people use plants to deal with death and dying. And I've pioneered a subset of yoga called Thana Yoga, which is the where we like yoga is huge and vast. And I created a program. Um, I was very active in the yoga world all throughout my 20s. I've been to ashrams. I've worked with all these lineages um, of figuring out and unlocking particular postures and sequences of postures, particular breathing exercises that you don't come in and talk about your loss, but you move through the loss on the mat in a particular Thana Yoga class. And so all the postures and things are um, selected for that. So it, I like 
I know that probably when you look at myself, you're like, what the heck is she doing? But it's all in service of my mission to improve the way that we deal with death and dying in my lifetime. And I want to be able to look back and see that I've left behind a body of work that is researched, tested, um, out there and something that people can actually apply in their lives. Well, and I love this because I get this, I'm like a very visual brain person, which is funny that I'm doing a podcast because you can't see either of us, but I get the visual of like, I'm, I'm touching my um, fingers to my thumbs. Like it's tactile. Like all of a sudden you've given me something to hold on to where for the most part, and you mentioned this as well, grief, we've made grief, especially in the United States, something that lives in our minds or in our hearts and not a physical expression. And so to be able to touch it or move through it on a mat or take some kind of course where you're writing things down or you're interacting with other people, all of a sudden that puts grief into the realm of the physical as opposed to the mental or the ethereal or the spiritual. And you can like, it becomes sticky, like you can get a grip on it. And yeah. it's, the, it's the coolest thing. And um, something that's coming to mind right now is uh, Elizabeth Gilbert just released her book, City of Girls, like mm -hmm. literally last week mm -hmm. or the week before. And she's going around the country and doing all these interviews. And something that she consistently brings up is the death of her partner, Rhea, and how that was an inspiration to write something that was extremely lighthearted and fun as a result of experiencing such loss. But she was like, the craziest thing happened in that I've never done this before with any other loss. She's like, I started to dance. Mm -hmm. Like literally the day after she died, I would put Rhea's... Uh, iPod or, or music playlist or whatever it is on shuffle and say, here, you pick the song. And then I would just move my body. She's like, and it wasn't attractive. And sometimes it was a ballad and sometimes it was a rocker and sometimes it was acoustic classical piano. And sometimes it was like screamo emo or whatever it was. And she was like, and I would literally just move the energy of grief out of my body yes. because it is this thing that needs to be moved geolocated. Yeah. 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 I, I believe this is informed by my specific, you know, experiences working with um, the dying and stuff over the years that grief is actually, yes, it's physical. There's definitely the mental, emotional part, but there's something in our bodies that our bodies need that um, can really help us move through it um, and really help us process it. And sometimes that physicality can just be laying flat on the ground. You know, there is a physicality, um, a processing that can happen just from laying on the ground. I mean, think about, have you ever laid outside under a tree, just laid there? Oh, yeah. That's mm -hmm. physical and that's very moving. Um, so it doesn't mean that you have to go run around the block to have that experience. But um, the, the body is a tool that we have to help us move our grief. I absolutely love this. And it's something that comes up in my own grief story as well, because mm -hmm. the way that my grief started to move was literally through temper tantrums. Mm -hmm. And I would shriek and like hit things. And I was like, I'm not usually a violent person. And so with that, with the physical death of my mother, I also had to embrace the death of an old identity of being a nonviolent or a non-angry person. And I was yeah. like, Ooh, I'm going to inhabit this now and just like let that take over and see what happens. But yeah, I became very physically angry and not towards other people or, or living things or animals, but like there was like a couple of pillows, a wall and a car that got a lot of beating from me. Um, that was really interesting to watch. And even now I'm kind of fascinated as an observer of my own experience. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. The human needs to hit things when she's grieving. Yep. Like it's, <laughs> it makes me laugh sometimes, but then at the same time, like when I'm experiencing grief or when I'm stressed, I'm like, okay, where can I physically channel this into? Um, 
I'm curious, as you talk about death companioning, it sounds like something that's so, uh, now that you've been trained in it, like a run of the mill thing. And so many of us are, I don't want to say lacking in that department, but we don't know we need it until almost until it's too late. Like, holy shit, I didn't know I needed to be a companion for this death. And now someone is dying. What do I do? So I'm wondering if you can share some insight for people who are listening, who are maybe in the process of actively companioning someone who's dying, uh, or if they're anticipating that in the future. Yeah. So death companioning is a role that we can take. You can become a death companion to yourself or to other people, um, even to groups of people, like to communities, to companion people through a loss. And death companions can show up as soon as, like as early as, let's say, diagnosis. Like somebody finds out that they are terminal and then they are like, I need a death companion to help me just sort this out. Death companions can be present all the way from diagnosis, all the way through dying, active dying, death, immediately after a death, post-death. And there's even a subset of death companioning that looks at care of the soul, like long after the person is gone. Um, But most death companions will specialize. So you'll have some death companions that are what are called vigil doulas. That means that they're trained in recognizing, identifying the signs of active death. So they can be in the room with the person as they die and they become that sort of grounding presence for anyone else that's in the room. And it kind of lets everyone else in the room feel like, okay, Cole's here. She's been around a lot of dying people. So if she's not freaking out, I'm not going to freak out. Um, So that's like a very specific uh, subset of death companioning. Um, A lot of people get into death companioning um, because of a loss that they had. Like they did it for somebody and they found the immense rewards and the the very rewarding experience that comes from it. Um, So you might hear terms like death doula, death midwife, um, vigil doula. There's even something called an abortion doula in the United States. There's all different types of loss companioning that come along with this. Um, And it's, it varies by from doula to doula. There are some death companions who don't want to be around dying people, but they're really, really great at all the advanced planning. And so that's the area that they focus on. This is nothing new. As long as humans have been living, we've been dying. And there's always been people... This is actually a lot of what I um, researched in my recent um, fellowship that I completed earlier this year. I was looking at the role of what you might call healers in our communities. And I'm talking about thousands of years ago, even hundreds of years ago. Anytime someone was dying, you know, there's always someone in town that people would know who to call. They'd be like, oh my gosh, so-and-so is taking a turn for the worst. Call Shelby, right? Um, That is death companioning. Usually that person is... uh, might might be religious, right? Like usually that's attached to somebody in religious communities. But part of why this seems like it's a new thing is because in the United States, it's now really, really common to not live in the city or town that you were born in or that your family resides in. And it's really, really common to not be like deeply attached to a religious community. So who do you call if you are away from your family and friends and away from like, you know, this, your community sort of where you originated and you're not attached to any religious traditions. Well, death companions. Um, And I can tell you that anybody that I have worked with um, individually, none of these individuals had a deep religious connection and, or they were in Cincinnati, but they're not from here. Um, So that sort of death companioning in a nutshell, they provide non-medical, non-judgmental support 
I love this. And it's kind of, I literally just wrote down death companioning is being a rock in the room or the touchstone for everyone else. Mm -hmm. And that's so cool because- And so valuable and anybody can do that. And it's so important because grief is something that literally uproots and unanchors almost all of us, especially if we're going through it for the very first time. And it's like, there is literally no ground underneath my feet. Um, And and I, I have this sense that death companions can be like, well, it's not the same ground that you were on before, but at least I've been here before. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I love this sense of if I'm not freaking out, you don't have to freak out. And, and that's yeah. really helpful. And that's something I saw kind of glimpses of with hospice because they were attuned to signs of death and kind of told us what to look for. And so we could kind of play, I mean, for lack of better phrasing, like a morbid I spy with my mom and be like, I spy some closed eyes. Um, and like kind of as she was getting closer to death, I've never phrased it that way before. Um, Mm -hmm. so that was really helpful because the whole thing seemed less foreign or scary. Yeah. Um, yes, but, uh, that's pretty incredible. I wonder, and please let me know if this is something that is or is not off limits to talk about, but were you able to companion your sister earlier this year? No, I was not. Um, and that's another interesting thing I'm happy to share and bring up because it's my experience. But, um, you know, I thought I learned so much from her death. I thought that going into it, like, oh my gosh, my sister is going to die. We're probably going to connect over this, right? Like she's going to reach out to me. Like we're going to bond over her death and go through it together because this is what I do for a living. Um, but sometimes people react. I like, she did not want to die. So her reaction was more avoidance um, of me because I work in death and dying. So she didn't want to die. So she avoided me. Now I'll tell you from like a professional sort of outlook. And I told you I was in New York last week and at like a funeral event, I was talking to all these death professionals as well. And I asked them if they had had that experience too. Like, did you have a close family or friend who died and they like avoided you? And all the funeral directors were like, oh my gosh, yes. All we want to do is do the funerals for our like family and friends. But they like specifically went with another funeral home. Um, And so that was really interesting to hear. And I think that just kind of touches on a broader conversation just about like avoidance and the ways that we avoid death. Yeah. Um, So it's interesting. So I have done, you know, I, um, any, anybody who works with end of life and like dying, we all tend to, you know, have counselors or therapists that we just regularly check in with. So I've done my, done the hard work of sort of processing and understanding that. But again, this has just been a takeaway for me from her death. Like all of these things that I learned that, I mean, there's no book about this. Um, and I know that you have a lot of listeners who are professionals, you know, in some way with loss as well. So hopefully that is helpful for them to hear. One of my favorite uh, people in the death care industry is a man by the name of Caleb Wilde, who actually came on. Yes, Caleb. Yeah. And he wrote this book called Confessions of a Funeral Director. And he wrote the most hilarious Facebook post the other day. And he's one of the few people like professional pages that I follow. And he wrote this thing about, he's like, funeral directors won't make you die. Like we don't have that power. But somehow there's this this spookiness or this hauntedness that comes with 
being comfortable with the death care industry where people are like, oh no, you're wishing it on me. Or even um, a woman came on the podcast even earlier this season named Susan Angel Miller. And she's like, just by the organ donation woman visiting my doctor's hospital room, I felt like maybe they were speeding along death. When in reality, she found out later, like that's not the case. They don't have any control. Like they don't have any sway over that. They're just, I mean, we're just doing our jobs. Um, and so it's really interesting. So I'm wondering, um, what can we say to people besides we won't make you die <laughs> just by exposure to us? We're not that powerful um, about people in the death care industry or people who are comfortable with death. Like more or less, we want to be allies with you. Right. So I think for me, and I guess the place that I've gotten to with my work is like, um, like, for example, in my death companioning course, um, I have like a like a little um, unit on this now about you know, professionals who work in, in a field that sort of have the opposite experience than what you might think. Um, and it's replicated in other professions. So I did a little research on this and I actually found that, for example, um, uh, a lot of surgeons, like heart surgeons, they, there's like this, like, common thread that I kept finding where they would have these heart attacks and they like knew all the symptoms because that's their expertise. Mm -hmm but it was happening in themselves. And so it just kind of got skipped over. And then also there's been research that shows that for like physicians and um, surgeons that their coworkers might recognize signs and symptoms of things, but are less likely to say anything because they assume, Oh, you got it. So what happened here, like in, in my particular experience is something that I have started to see that is actually replicated what seems to be across most all other professions. So I don't know. Um, and this is something I'm looking forward to spending time figuring out, like, well, what can I do here that actually creates a tool that others can apply? That's so fascinating because it's almost like your brain automatically is how can I make this go beyond me? Like, how can I make this applicable to other people as opposed to just my experience? Yeah. I mean, I guess we're just, uh, I've had a lot of loss in my life. And I think um, I learned the hard way that asking why, why did this happen? Why me? That really doesn't, even, even if you get an answer, it doesn't make you feel any better. But asking what questions does, what can I learn? What did this show me? What, what did this teach me? You can do something with that. And I always feel better knowing that I did something instead of not doing something. Wrapping up this conversation, I want to let people know first where they can find your podcast, because if you're already listening to a podcast, that means you know how to do it and you can just go subscribe right now. Um, but then also where listeners can find every single other thing you do, your courses, your studies, your talks, everything. Yes. So you can find me at AmericanThanatologist.com or if you search Thanatology, I'm <laughs> going to pop right up there. And everything that I'm doing is linked from that American Thanatologist webpage, um, including my podcasts, which, which are Life, Death, and Tarot. And then I have a second podcast called The American Thanatologist um, as well. And those are like free and um, available <laughs> at your convenience. They're so much fun. And podcasts are a great way to let people get to know you without... Uh, kind of on a mass scale. Like I don't have to have phone calls with every single person that listens to the show. But if you listen to the podcast, you get a pretty good gist of who I am, my values, my leanings, my slants, 
uh, and the vocabulary too. Like, what's the vocabulary that we use to talk about grief and loss? And I yeah. think that's so much of, of your work too, is what are the words? Yes, yes. So podcasting is wonderful and it helps anybody going through a loss feel less alone um, as evidenced by your podcast and your work. (laughs) (laughs) I love it so much. Well, Cole, I have just been delighted by this conversation and the life that you bring into death work, I think is so absolutely refreshing. So thank you for joining us on coming back today. Thank you so much. And what a wonderful compliment to receive. I really appreciate it. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Cole and Perry who joined me to talk about what grief is like for grief professionals and how we can all be death companions for our friends, family, and community. Cole came back by asking what instead of why and by connecting with other grief professionals to talk about what it's like to grieve in the death care industry. You can find a link to Cole's website where you can find her podcasts, courses, and so much more in the show notes. To keep this little grief podcast going and to receive insider bonuses like weekly grief journaling prompts, podcast swag, and live grief support from me, pledge to support the show at patreon.com slash Shelby Our next live grief support hangout is this Monday, June 24th at 8 p.m. Central Time. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or tell a friend about Coming Back because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. One-on-one grief coaching is a powerful way to sit across from your loss and say, what do you have to teach me? If you're ready to start sharing your story or you're looking for tools, exercises, and a map forward in the aftermath of loss, please head to shelbyforsythia.com slash grief coaching to fill out an interest form. Grief is a personal experience, but we don't have to go it alone. My heart and ears are here to witness and companion your grief story, and I would be honored to provide a foundation for you as we explore, construct, and navigate your own coming back. Find out more and get in touch for a free 30-minute consultation call at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching. Give your grief the gift of coaching at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching.